0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as we've already heard this morning, this is the season of the year when the church celebrates and uh, anticipates the coming of God into the world and into our own lives uh, in whatever state or whatever condition uh, people like us find ourselves in. Uh, Advent is when we, of course, remember Bethlehem and that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, but it is also the time when we remember that Jesus will return with both judgment and healing to make everything new again. Uh, It always has an eye. Advent always has an eye on both of those times, Bethlehem time and the end of time. He has come and he is coming. And I know that it's tempting uh, to let this season just slip into being about other things about the the acquisition and consumption of stuff or giving things away or about warm feelings and, and cozy celebrations. And I'm all for warm feelings and giving and receiving and cozy celebrations. But we should not be lulled into thinking that that's all that there is. And honestly, most of us don't have the leisure, I think, to be lulled into that. We've all got all kinds of stuff going on in our own lives and we look out at our city and into the broken world beyond it and we know that things are not as they should be and so that's why we think about his coming again and with hope and with longing we prepare for his coming again and that's where our sermon text comes in this morning Uh, each week during Advent we're looking at a scripture passage that the church also usually sings at this time of year This morning we're going to be on the banks of the Jordan River with that wild prophet named John. And when Luke tells us the story of John, he quotes from Isaiah 40. That's a text that we have already uh, read together and heard together and sung twice. Uh, So let me read from Luke 3 for us, verses 1 through 9. You can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Luke 3. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now what well, we always ask that you would use this word that we have sung and heard and read together to show us the word that bears our flesh that you would keep that promise to us, that those words that we sang, that we would really be people who know that to be true, that you are the dawn that lights our way. Father, use this word to lead us to Christ. Meet us exactly where we are. Those of us who feel really near and those of us who feel really far. Those of us who are happy and filled with joy. Those of us who sit in darkness and sadness. Father, meet all of us and show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it again. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I am, uh, I'm guessing that many of you saw or maybe read uh, about that ad that the uh, stationary bike company Peloton has been taking a beating over for the last uh, week and a half or so. If you haven't seen this ad, I can give you uh, the bare outline of it, the plot line of it. Uh, It starts with a guy giving his wife a stationary bike for Christmas. I mean, that is a little shaky to start with. Um, But then she vlogs about using it every day. And while she is using it, she looks, for whatever reason, pretty nervous and scared. Uh, And then at the end of the year, she makes him sit down with him on a couch and watch the video compilation. And then she turns to him and says, a year ago, I didn't know how much this would change me. Thank you. <laughs> so my my point is not really to say much of anything about that ad. Uh, I mean, I have thoughts about it for sure. Um, and you can watch it later, not during the sermon, and you can make up your own mind. Um, my point is to talk about the reaction to it, both online and to Peloton's bottom line. The reaction was swift, it was often funny, often angry, often merciless, and the reaction was financially painful. Peloton peddled into a PR nightmare, and last week they lost about 11% of their value. That's $1 billion with a B. So my point is this, whatever they expected to happen when they released that ad. It was not what happened. Whatever they hoped was going to happen when they released that ad was not what actually happened. They they did not expect that turn of events. And I thought about that ad this week as I was reflecting on the beginning of the passage that we just read together. You probably heard it as I was reading it. Luke piles up a ton of names at the beginning of that passage. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and with those three names, he piles on four more power brokers over God's people, two Roman governors, two high priests who work closely with the Roman power in charge. These are some incredibly powerful, powerful people together together They represent about a hundred years of rule by the empire. The last 25 of which for God's people had seen a Roman governor on a throne in a palace in Jerusalem. It was a rule by oppression and fear and intimidation and violence threatened on anyone who would get out of line. And that rule was on lock. And that's where I thought about this ad. Because whatever those guys expected, whatever those guys expected to come out of their rule, whatever they imagined was happening under their noses as they ruled, was definitely not what the gospel writer Luke tells us was happening. They were on the cusp of an advent that would change absolutely everything. Because Luke has told us already, two babies have been born. One named John and one named Jesus. And from the moment of their birth, they have been on a trajectory that will lead them to crash into the world that these seven guys had conspired together to create. And once that crash happened, nothing, nothing would be the same. Those babies have now grown into men. And something is coming. And that is very, very good news. But first, we have to remember. We have to remember that Luke has listed those seven names because he wants them to land with a thud. This was a dark dark time for God's people. They lived in fear. They lived with a nagging sense that things were not right in their world. And for many of them, that nagging sense included the fact that they had been complicit and comfortable in that system. They had grown comfortable with navigating the system of oppression and fear that had been imposed on them. Some of them had even bettered themselves by it. Luke wants us to know that that's what things were like on the cusp of Jesus' advent, that things were dark. And church, I think that's good for people like us to wrestle with, to think about, in part because it's not exactly unfamiliar territory for us. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, put it like this. He said, Christmas is not a reminder that the world is really quite a nice old place. It reminds us that the world is a shockingly bad old place where wickedness flourishes unchecked, where children are murdered, where civilized countries make a lot of money by selling weapons to uncivilized ones so that they can blow each other apart. Christmas is God lighting a candle. And you don't light a candle in a room that is already full of sunlight. And I have to say, Church, that I think this is one of the reasons why this season of the year is so dear and so important for people like us. Because it is honest to the experience that you and I live in every single day of our lives. We know that there is darkness out there. But if we're being honest, and I hope that we can be honest we will all admit that we are all dealing with our own darkness in our own lives, too. Maybe that darkness is grief over a relationship that you have broken or that is slipping away. Maybe that darkness is the imprisonment of an addiction. Maybe it is shame over things that we've done or things that have been done to us maybe it's uncertainty about the future or about the future and well-being of people that we love maybe that darkness is mental illness or the effect that that has on a person or a family or in a school or in a community as tish harrison warren wrote last week in the new york times we dwell in a world still racked with conflict violence suffering darkness an advent holds a space for our grief and it reminds us that all of us in one way or another are not only wounded by evil in the world but are also wielders of it and church those things need the light of Jesus coming They need the light of Jesus coming. It is absolutely necessary for dark things to be brought out into the light because the good news of Jesus coming with both judgment and healing is not a vague theological concept. The good news of his judgment and his healing takes a real flesh and blood space, a real reality, a a tangible, feelable reality in our world. His cross and his resurrection have the last word to say about darkness. And that means that people like us, we can stop acting as if it isn't there. We can stop trying to cover it up. We can stop trying to frantically compensate for that darkness. We don't have to bear it alone. We don't have to bear it in hiding. We can drag whatever it is into the light of Jesus' grace and we can speak the truth about it. And we can begin to experience the the forgiveness and the healing that Jesus has secured for us through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension. And that's really good news. So listen, if, if there is something in the darkness that you are hiding... Something in the darkness that you are protecting or trying to manage. Please don't. Don't. You don't need to hide that thing or manage it. And you weren't meant to. The forgiveness and the healing that Jesus offers is real. So drag whatever that thing is out of the darkness into the light of his grace. And if you don't know how to do that, talk to a friend. Talk to someone that you trust and ask them to help you to drag that thing into the light of Jesus' grace. Because that, church, is why he came. That is why he came. So things are dark for God's people. But then Luke says a light begins to dawn. As Luke puts it in verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, out in the wilderness. <laughs> and if you know the story of John's birth, you might remember that when his father, uh, Zechariah, was told that he was going to have a son, he didn't, he didn't believe it, he was incredulous. And so he asked for a sign so that he would know that it was really going to happen. And he got his sign. It's a beautiful, funny sign, I think. He wasn't able to talk until the day that his son was born. And when he finally got his voice back, this is what he said about his son. You, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of his salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. There's that note of darkness giving way to light again. And John's dad was right. (laughs) That's his boy in a poetic nutshell. He's the one who gets people ready for the coming of Jesus. And John did that by preaching about a king and about a kingdom. And the kingdom that he was preaching about wasn't a place that you go to. It's not a land. It's not a castle or a province that you travel to in order to be in. It's not a state of mind. The king and the kingdom that he is talking about is very real. It is the very real and active presence and rule of God in his world. This is what John is saying in his preaching that God is going to keep his promises of healing and forgiveness and restoration for his people. That God is going to come as a judge to make this world right again and restore justice and peace everywhere. He is coming to do business with the darkness, both in here. And out there. And Luke is so intent, the gospel writer is so intent that we understand this is who John is. And this is what John was doing that he quotes from the larger story of God and his world. He makes sure we get it. He quotes from that passage that we've heard and sung already from Isaiah 40. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then there's that beautiful picture of all of creation bending over backwards, getting ready for God to come to his people. I mean, when God comes, you don't have to build a bridge for him over the valley because the valley comes up to meet him. When God comes, you don't, you don't have to show him the pass around the side of the mountain because the mountain lowers itself down to him. Crooked roads straighten themselves out and rough places become smooth when God comes. And you know what this communicates to us? You know what Isaiah meant. You know what Luke means. You know what John means. He wants, they all want to communicate this air of ironclad inevitability. This is going to happen. There's not a better than average chance that it'll happen. This is not a, a Lord willing in the creek don't rise kind of sensibility. This will happen. And that's why those words of promise are always a comfort to people like us. God means to say to us without a doubt that he has spoken the last word about darkness. And that its days are absolutely numbered. God would have us know that he has come and that he is coming and that the weight of his glory will be revealed and all of the world will see this salvation. Darkness will be beaten back. The justice and peace in which and for which the world was created will be restored. The sunrise will visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in church when god offers people like us that kind of comfort it's it's so desperately important that we understand that he is not offering it as a distant word of solace because the darkness is not going to be dispelled by a, a distant word of solace it's not going to be dispelled by a theological premise It's not going to be dispelled by a set of reform actions. It's not going to be dispelled even by a bunch of good intentions, a heap of them. The darkness will be dispelled because God himself is coming. And my guess is that old John would have never guessed, not in a million years, how God would defeat the darkness. He couldn't have guessed Because God would defeat the darkness by being willingly overcome by it for a time. So that he could exhaust it of its power. But that is the scandalous logic of the kingdom that John proclaimed. The scandalous logic that says that the fullest expression of God's darkness crushing glory is seen in the self-giving love of his cross. Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension is how darkness that is in here and out there. It's how those things are defeated. And church, part of growing up as a Christian, part of maturing in our faith is believing that that is absolutely true and believing it in a way that is not a premise, that is not an abstraction but that sinks down deep into who we are so that we spend all of our days tirelessly, faithfully, patiently, hopefully working it out in our own lives and relationships and in the broken world in which we move and live. And as far as John is concerned, no no part of this is negotiable. It's not like he's saying God's kingdom is here to live in if you'd like to or to experience in your head. If you think about it hard enough, it's just here. Here. And nothing will ever be the same again, which is why John's message always begins with repentance. As Luke puts it, he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is the getting people ready part of John's life. John wants us to know that the presence of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus really just gives us two options. There's not any play between them. It's just these two options. On the one hand, we could bury our heads in the sand and keep living as complicit, compliant citizens in the closed, status quo, graceless world that we have been living in. It's that world that is carved up by our own modern Herods and Pilots and Tiberiuses, that is run down by callous oppression and mindless consumption and marching secularization. Or... Or we could loosen our grip on all that stuff and let go of all the things that have been hurting us and hurting the people around us. And we can turn toward the one who made us and who loves us and who wants us to flourish and say, I'm sorry. Help me. Because that's what repentance is. And you know, we don't do that, we don't say I'm sorry into the void of space with our fingers crossed. We do it looking directly at the cross of the God who happily entered into our darkness to rescue us. And so, when we say that we are sorry in faith, we're forgiven, we're restored, we're set free, or we're set free again if we've been away for a while to live the life that we have been made to live under the gracious and peaceable rule of Jesus. And, church, when we do that, we're ready. We have been readied. And so for John, you know, nothing could be more urgent than this. Even now, he says, right now in this moment, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. It's a stark matter of light and dark, either this choice or that choice. Which is why he greets those who come out to see him with a hearty, Hello, you brood of vipers, (laughs) you sons and daughters of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Why? Why? Why would John say that? (laughs) He would say that because he doesn't want them to feel warm and safe with the fake, false, thin warmth and safety with which they had become accustomed, which was no warmth and safety at all. And so instead, he invites them and he invites us to respond. He tells these crowds that are coming out to see him, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Which is his way of saying the thing that matters is this fundamental whole life realignment to the God who is coming in Jesus. The thing that matters is this genuine, thorough, ongoing submission to God's reign in ways that result in living and in being. That is faithful and patient and hopeful working out the good news of his coming in our own lives and relationships and in the broken world around us. And church, that leaves John's word to those people as relevant to us as it was when he spoke them. What do you and I say? What do I say? (laughs) What do you say to John's invitation right now, this minute? The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. Let me pray for us. Father, we uh, pray what we have already sung. Come, Lord Jesus come and heal us. Father, help us to have the faith to believe that that is true, that you will do that. That there is nothing that we hide and foster and compensate for in the darkness that you cannot break or heal or remake. Help us to cling to him in faith. And we pray it in his name. Amen.